Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. After the hurricanes that swept through uh, Houston and a lot of Texas, as well as Florida and Puerto Rico, there's a question of who is going to rebuild, whether there is enough labor to make uh, all of these new homes and whether the supplies are there. And here to answer those questions is Cheryl Palmer, president and chief executive officer of Taylor Morrison Home Corporation based in Scottsdale, Arizona. And Cheryl, uh, one question that I have is a lot of people have raised concern about rebuilding in areas that are prone to floods should there be another hurricane. What's your view on that? And how has uh, your company addressed that? It's an interesting question. Um, I'll be honest, I don't share that same concern. Um, When I look at the market, I think if you, first of all, I think it's hard not to recognize the event that we had, a billion gallons of water, 50 inches of rain. I mean, I think the stat is something, you know, we designed to a 100 and 500 year floodplain, something like 45,000 years you have to go back to find a similar. This is the Houston. This uh, is in Houston specifically. So when I look at the, you know, I look at Houston and I look at six and a half million people, I actually don't have concerns. I think it's important that we rebuild this city um, as quick as we can. And when I look at how new construction did, um, I think one of the things that was most surprising is, you know, our company and our communities across Houston, as well as many other new um, home builders, didn't have the same level of devastation that we had in older communities. So I think when you think about building sciences and design today, engineering and kind of the, you know, the way streets are used and pads are built up, um, I think, you know, I, I don't think you're going to see that people are um, running from Houston. I think you'll see that they're running to new construction. Well, let's get on to the new construction. Maybe just give people a little hint as to uh, the kind of areas that you are focused on. I know you just opened or expanded uh, your presence in the South Carolina market. Uh, Indian land, I believe, is the location there. Maybe just tell people a little bit about Taylor Morrison. Absolutely. We build in 20 markets across the United States. So we do build in Texas. In Texas, we build in Houston, Dallas, and Austin. Um, We do build, to your point, in the Carolinas, both in Charlotte and Raleigh. We build in Florida, um, and that's Naples, Sarasota, Tampa, Orlando, um, Colorado, Georgia, Arizona, and then Southern and Northern California. So really a pretty good footprint across the United States. Build about 8,000 homes a year. Um, And generally, um, when I look at the business across the portfolio, we serve a number of consumer groups. About a third of our business is first-time buyer. A third of it is that first, second-time move-up. And a third is about the, you know, 50-plus buyer. All kinds of products and different consumers. Have you found that there have been labor shortages, not enough people uh, available to actually build the homes? Absolutely. So what are you doing to address that, and what do you attribute the, uh, the shortage to? That is a very big and complicated question. Um, But yeah, you know, this has been a concern well before hurricane season. Um, And if I think about specifically, because this is something we've been talking about for years, so maybe I'll start on why. I mean, there's so many, candidly, there's so many reasons, but... 
you know, we've aged out through the downturn a good amount of the workforce. Um, if I look at the average plumber electrician, they're in their mid-50s today. Um, so we've aged out some real good experience. People also left the industry during the downturn. Immigration has had an impact on the workforce. Um, we're also not developing new talent into our industry. I mean, many of the vocational programs went away um, through the downturn. So there's a, it's, it's a long journey to kind of rebuild the workforce. And I would say there's this cultural kind of underpinning that people aren't aspiring to go into the trades today, which can be a wonderful, you know, really a wonderful career. Because of the shortage not being new news, what we've done is, you know, early in the year, we actually got very aggressive in getting um, new production into the ground, stimulating sales so that we were building um, homes that were sold. It really, that head start, as it turns out, was very fortunate um, as I look at the impacts that the hurricanes are going to have on so many. Just a couple of uh, data points. You increased the most recently increased the stock buyback, I believe, uh, program, right? Adding a hundred million dollars, and the stock is up uh, more than seventeen percent so far this year. Uh, What would you tell an investor in this particular industry? What are the specific things you would want to know before you make an investment, either buying? You know, as uh, as a shareholder buying a, a, a home builder, or uh, even as someone that wants to make an acquisition of an entire company, how do you measure the value? Yeah, it's a really f- good, fair question. You know, I don't think there's one metric, but I think it starts with understanding the company's strategy and methodology and how you operate the business. Um, so when I look at kind of our core operating principles, it's really around protecting the business through a full cycle. When you're when you're investing in real estate, I think there's an appreciation that this tends to be a volatile sectors and the markets can come and go. And how have you really prepared the organization for that? Because it's not if, it's when and how the company can perform. And so when we look at our strategy around core locations and making, you know, having a true appreciation that shelter is a basic need for folks um, and understanding that no matter what the markets do, we're still going to sell homes compared to, for example, operating on the fringe where you might have great run-ups. So you start looking at the different strategies that are deployed, but then it's really about return, um, growth, is it for growth's sake? Are you in the right places long-term that can sustain different market impacts? Well, talking about that in particular, do you think that there are any large U.S. cities that are getting close to saturation uh, that are seeming a little bit overbuilt at this point? No, you know, as long as I've been doing this, y- you always wonder where that next piece of land is going to come from. But it does kind of regenerate and revigorate. And so, no, as I mean, you think about what really um, impacts the home building industry. It's about job growth. It's about some of those very basic services, but really mostly around jobs. And when you look at your top 20 markets across the U.S., I would argue just exactly the opposite, that I think those opportunities are becoming more plentiful. But how we, the creativity we use in securing new land that meet the needs of our consumers at affordable prices is key. Thank you very much for spending time with us. Uh, Cheryl Palmer is the chief executive of Taylor Morrison Homes. Thanks very much. Thank you very much.
Uh, let's see what's going on in the world of Netflix. And for that, we, of course, bring in uh, Paul Sweeney. He is our expert when it comes to everything uh, Internet media. He's our senior media Internet analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. So Paul Sweeney, $8 billion can buy you a lot of stuff, can it? Yeah, it's going to buy uh, a lot of programming next year. And that's a big jump from uh, $6 billion that they're going to spend uh, this year. Uh, and off balance sheet, they have another $17 billion of long-term liabilities um, that they're contracted for. So, um, you know, this is a business, you know, it's, I think from the company's perspective, it's kind of a virtuous circle. And that is the more we spend on programming, uh, the more new subscribers uh, we can attract and the more those new subscribers then generate revenue and cash flow for us, which then supports more programming investments. So that's the business that they feel like they're in at this moment. And over the last four or five years, it's ab- absolutely played out. You know, Paul, I was talking with my fellow Gadfly columnist, Shira Ovide, this morning, and she was saying, you know, it seems like perhaps the underappreciated truth about Netflix is that they're mortgaging their their present for the future and they're going deeper and deeper into debt in order to uh, get more subscribers and to build out their content. But this is this is a high risk proposition, and it's not clear that they've reached sort of the warp speed necessary uh, to to make them successful over the long term. No. Well, you know, it's interesting. It's uh, I think uh, Reed Hastings and the Netflix folks they they look at uh, Jeff Bezos and Amazon and they see you know a visionary there who is willing to make uh, huge long term investments uh, based upon what uh, is believed as a as a great long term play that is e commerce. And so, if you read Hastings, you see us you see yourself in a similar light, which is uh, internet enabled. Uh, television or video viewing is a global opportunity. The market is clearly moving to that market, to the uh, over-the-top type of viewing. Um, Netflix has always enjoyed first mover advantage. They've always enjoyed uh, the best brand name in the business. And uh, if you do believe in the long-term opportunity here, you spend it now and you spend aggressively to take market share and defend off competition. And that's clearly the, 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 the strategy. But but they're raising their prices at a time when Amazon, if you have an Amazon Prime membership, you're also accessing their videos for free. I put in air quotes because you're paying for Amazon right. Prime. But that's that's a pretty big competitive uh, proposition. It is. And, and I think um, what the company has really realized over the last, really the last year or so, I would say, is, you know, they need to rely more on originally uh, produced programming as opposed to taking some of the content that's already been produced and, and, and viewed from the traditional media companies, whether it's a movie or a TV series. Uh, so you see them really stepping up and uh, about 25 to 30% of that the $8 billion will be spent on original programming. And that number they expect to go to 50%. So it really goes to the fact that in order, they know that they have to differentiate themselves in an increasingly competitive marketplace from the Amazons, from the Hulus, but also from, just think about what happened to Walt Disney Company a few weeks ago. They announced that they are taking ESPN and the Disney Channel's direct-to-consumer, uh, much like uh, Net- Netflix is offered direct-to-the-consumer. So we're seeing a lot more competition in the marketplace outside of the U.S. There's a lot of local competition that uh, Netflix faces, um, but yet uh, they continue to put up a very strong subscriber gains, and uh, the company believes that the primary driver for that is its high-quality original programming. Paul, what's with the sweater? What's with the Reed Hastings uh, Stranger Things sweater? What is that is sort of intuit from what well, they I think they're you merchandising, know, they, right? So he, he put on a kind of a funny sweater uh, from one of the shows that 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 airs on Net Netflix uh, on the earnings conference call last night, the video portion, uh, basically signaling that much like the Walt Disney Company does 
so well. Uh, They're going to get into the merchandising business and, and get into the merchandising of some of their original content that they own and that they can license and try to build out, you know, different uh, revenue streams. Um, and we saw DreamWorks try to do it, uh, but really nobody does it nearly as well as the Walt Disney Company. You know, you keep mentioning the Disney Company, which makes me think of ESPN, which makes me think of the NFL controversy of late. And I'm wondering if you could just quickly touch on ratings for football games and viewership. Has it gone down uh, since the eruption of the uh, kneeling anthem controversy? Ratings uh, over the last uh, season and a half in particular uh, have been flat to down for most of the broadcast. Now, we have so many broadcasts Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, Thursday evening, Monday night. Um, they all do differently, but generally the trend has been down. And the question is, is that just simply a function of what's happening in traditional uh, television where everybody's audience is de- declining as people cut the cord and spend more time on the internet? Or is it something specific to the NFL? And I think most observers uh, feel like um, there is something specific to the NFL. The the politicization of the NFL and football has really been a net negative for them and has hurt them in terms of audience. And we kind of hear that from the players, the owners, uh, uh, as well as the broadcast partners. That can't be good for Disney, but... Uh, uh, no, so the question too. is, is this a long-term trend or is this just something kind of a bump in the road that something will, you know, presumably will, will pass? Thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure to hear your insights. Paul Sweeney, U.S. Director of Research and Senior Senior Media and Internet Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, talking about Netflix, NFL, all things media. Our topic now is gold and bank regulation. Ruth Kroll is chief executive of the London Bullion Market Association, and she joins us now. Ruth, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, You know, one of the things that I learned in in preparing to speak with you is that the new uh, rules that are being set forth by uh, Basel III for central by central banks for uh, commercial banks. Uh, has some interesting uh, nuances if you're a gold investor. Could you describe what they are and what you believe the effects would be on the market? Sure. Um, hi, and thanks so much for inviting me to speak to you guys this um, this afternoon. Um, basically, the net stable funding ratio, it's um, liquidity rules put in place for commodities. And in this case, gold has been treated as a commodity, um, which it, one of the main issues with that is the high cost. Um, And this is going to have two major effects. One, it will be a loss of liquidity as banks um, are unable to reach the higher costs, as well as an effect on what we call the real economy. So the people who don't have the option to get out of precious metals. So the miners, the refiners, the jewelry manufacturers, they're going to see big increases as well as uh, um, a lack of financing. Wait, hold, let's let's take a step back. So basically, these rules, sure. Basel III, uh, which is looking to uh, create a better and stricter banking regulatory framework, includes different weightings for risky assets that banks hold on their balance sheets. And basically, under this proposal, gold would get a very high well, we would get a very low risk weighting. In other words, it would be considered a very risky asset, making it uh, less right. valuable for banks to hold as a liquid asset. Um, and and you were saying in in some of the uh, in some of the comments coming out of this latest mm-hmm. uh, conference, this could potentially tank the prices of gold, right? 
No, I mean, absolutely. I think there could be real disruption to the market, um, not only in terms of loss of liquidity, um, but also in terms of a disruption to the clearing facility that happens for gold each day in London. All right. So if that were to happen, uh, what do you believe would be the reaction of large banks, but also what would you believe would be the reaction to the gold price? Well, I think we, we remain price neutral, but in terms of the, the banks themselves, I mean, we've already seen this start to happen in terms of banks deciding to, to pull out of precious metals. Um, and certainly there has been some departures. I mean, I, I think there's a larger commodity story there too, um, but certainly um, the fact that gold performed, performed extremely well during the crisis, it's sort of ironic now that it's being considered this risky asset that needs this um, disproportional funding ratio. Is this a done deal? I hope not. I'm, I think we're working hard to make sure that we're raising it with the right people. I think, as, as I said, because gold did so well, um, certainly it's a go-to asset in times of crisis. Um, it seems strange that you're going to put it in a position where that could no longer be the case because you have disruption to the market. Although, in fairness, gold is, or at least gold prices have been rather volatile. And, uh, and you know, if you're thinking about liquid assets that have predictable prices when you want to get out of them, that could that could be the issue, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's sort of the reasoning behind um, the regulatory push here, right? Well, I think one of the the major issues is the lack of um, information on gold, and that's something that we've been trying to address. Um, We've been working to get trade statistics and reporting for the OTC market. Um, You might not be aware, but the London OTC market is actually the largest financial market in the world for gold. I think people focus a lot on the futures because you've got those statistics. Um, But certain London is certainly within the industry seen as the epicenter. Can you explain what is bullion banking and why people who are invested in gold or thinking about investing in gold, whether that be a gold miner or, as you said, Mm -hmm. uh, a jewelry company or anybody that deals with gold, Mm -hmm. why is bullion banking relevant? Well, I think there's two issues there. I mean, within the same market, you have speculation. So gold is treated as a currency and traded like a currency is in the Forex OTC markets. And then you also have, as I described, the real economy. So um, let's say a mining company who needs financing or a jewelry manufacturing who doesn't want to be exposed to the price sensitivity as the, the metal goes through the plant, they will take financing from a bullion bank. And the bullion bank has that centered liquidity from the combination of the speculation as well as the real economy financing. So, uh, you know, one big question uh, that I hear from people is sort of this conflation between gold and Bitcoin. That, in other words, these cryptocurrencies are becoming the new gold and superseding the precious metal as this sort of haven role, ironically, uh, considering the incredible volatility there. Have you heard about that or how is the uh, the organization kind of addressing that at all? It's certainly about a topic. I mean, I'm actually calling you live from Barcelona, the, the main um, LBMA industry conference. Um, and what's been really interesting is how much we've been talking about cryptocurrencies. Gold tends to be a rather conservative industry. Um, so I was a bit surprised, actually, in terms of 
how much interest there was in the crypto side of things. And I think that's because fundamentally, um, a lot of people who are attracted to investing in gold um, see the, the benefit having the lack of government intervention, because it is no one's liability. Um, gold is gold. So there's an interesting combination between crypto and gold. And that's something we've certainly been hearing talked about in the last few days. Does the increased participation on the part of governments or bank regulators in the gold market, does that make it less attractive? Um, it certainly makes it more frustrating um, from our side of things. Um, I think ultimately we need some clarity when it comes to Basel III and the, these rules that ultimately gold having failed to become a high-quality liquid asset by their determination, has been lumped in really wholesale with everything else and not been treated um, differently as it really should be given its role as a currency as well. And uh, just real quick, you see that uh, gold is probably going to climb 6% uh, by this time next year. Is that correct? I think we're saying five and a bit, but yes, yes, we had a prediction of going up about five and a half percent in time for our conference in Boston in October next year. Ruth Kroll, thank you so much for joining us. Ruth Kroll is chief executive of the London Bullion Market Association, which is based in London. We were talking earlier about reports that Mexico and Canada will reject U.S. NAFTA proposals as reported by CNBC. Following that report, the Canadian dollar and the Mexican peso fell sharply to session lows. They were traced uh, a lot of that move. But this highlights the perception that, frankly, Canada and Mexico have more to lose should NAFTA get torn up or should negotiations deteriorate further. To discuss is Josh Wingrove, uh, Canada politics reporter for Bloomberg News, coming to us from Ottawa in Canada. And Josh, you know, right now, NAFTA negotiations are ongoing. The chatter that we keep getting seems rather negative as far as reaching some kind of new agreement. Can you just give us a state of play of where things are right now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're sort of have our heads spinning here this morning because that CNBC report you mentioned, there's nothing new in it. I mean, this has been going for a week. And what it really is saying is that there are five core proposals that Mexico and Canada have repeatedly and publicly rejected. And all kinds of observers are saying if the U.S. wants a deal, which of course no one really knows if they do or not, uh, that they're going to have to water down their wine. Uh, so CNBC, uh, you know, I'm, I'm here in Washington covering the talks right now. This 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 report sort of uh, wrapped up what many of, uh, including Bloomberg, have been reporting for quite some time, uh, is that, you know, they're meeting today and what Robert Lighthizer, the U.S. trade representative, who is slowly sort of losing power to Wilbur Ross on this file, is going to hear from Mexicans and Canadians that on these five things, you know, you're going to have to do some soul searching. On the, There's essentially two negotiations going on, one on those five with no progress, and one on about two dozen other things that is essentially modernizing NAFTA, bringing it into an internet era, and that that's going well. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it would feel like a little bit of whiplash today here on this kind of thing. Yeah, it's a long time coming that trade negotiations have this kind of tension and, uh, and excitement. Uh, Josh, is there a, an undertone to these uh, back and forths 
because you mentioned the uh, the shift of power in terms of the U.S. negotiating team. Yeah. Uh, what you know, if even on an anecdotal basis, what's the undertone to this about whether the U.S. administration really wants a deal or is really just looking for an excuse to say goodbye? Uh, you know, I, I think the Me- one thing the Mexicans and Canadians have said is we're not going to walk away. And what you can read into that is they they might think that the U.S. is trying to bait them into walking away. And they're not going to do that. Uh, that you know, they're going to stay at the table. Uh, but they, they are also saying that they're not going to take just any deal, you know, the, uh, on anything. And so I, I think the mood here has certainly changed. The fourth round has been more tense than the third, second, and first. However, some people thought the U.S. would walk away at the fourth round to begin with. And so that hasn't happened. Right. Uh, so, you know, it, it, I don't know. Things, things are always complicated. Christia Freeland, the Canadian minister, did walk out of Canada-EU trade talks last year. Guess what? The deal kicked in last month. You know, it doesn't necessarily kill a deal if people walk out. Josh, let's talk about the five aspects, the most controversial uh, points of discussion right now. What are they? Yeah, I'll give you the Coles notes because, uh, you know, take it from me. Sometimes these talks are like watching paint dry. Uh, we have, autos is probably the biggest one. You think of Donald Trump's lens on this. He wants to bring back manufacturing jobs. From Mexico, they proposed what are called rules of origin changes that would essentially mean more of a car has to be built in North America and in the U.S. Specifically, automakers have warned that no one would even bother. They would just pay the WTO tariff and import more cars to the U.S. and actually decrease U.S. production. Other big ones are on a sunset clause that would essentially spike NAFTA after five years unless people stepped in to save it. You can imagine how many businesses would love the idea of that, making a long-term investment decision with a potential five-year runway, uh, not great. Uh, government procurement, the U.S. wants to basically close off nearly all of its market to Mexico and Canada. Dispute panels, these are sort of like the NAFTA cops. The U.S. Want, US wants to get rid of them entirely. And dairy, that's always a hot-button issue, particularly for Canada. The U.S. has proposed essentially dismantling Canada's entire dairy system. That would be a just absolute political non-starter for any Canadian government. And so those, those are the big ones. And so the U.S. proposals are so far out of, out of what the three countries agreed to in the Trans-Pacific Partnership that you know, the other two countries are saying, you know, like that's they're, they're calling it a non-starter. They're saying phrases like flatly reject, completely reject. Right. I mean, they're not leaving a lot of wiggle room. Well, but Josh, you know, I was I, I thought it was compelling the market response to the yeah. reports, even though they were old news. But the idea that uh, things were falling apart, it's interesting to me to think that that created a fall in both the loonie and the peso. Is it expected that if there is some kind of devolution of talks here, that will be negative, most negative for Canada and Mexico, more than even the U.S.? Uh, I I think that's true. I think that's true. You know, one of the things that has really characterized the early rounds of talk is there's been almost no American media interest. There's been almost, other than like Bloomberg and Reuters, there's been almost no uh, uh, stakeholder interest is the word I'm looking for in the U.S. And so we we saw the U.S. chamber speak out this last week. The Canadians think that that is less about the U.S. chamber thinking, oh, geez, things are going off the rails than they are waking up to the fact that things could go off the rails. And so I, there's there's a tiered effect here. The U.S., if it pulls out, you know, uh, there would be all kinds of uh, ripple effects throughout the economy. Canada has a safety net that Mexico does not. Canada has a bilateral FTA with the U.S. that was a predecessor of NAFTA and they would hope to sort of dust that off and see if it could start up again uh, if NAFTA if NAFTA collapsed. Uh, so, so this sort of you know, like Mexico has 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 less of a safety net, as I say, than Canada.
Josh, any chance you can do Airbus and the Bombardier in less than 15 seconds? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Airbus took half of Bombardier's prized jewel for free because Bombardier was desperate and needed a partner. They were talking with the Chinese. They chose Airbus. Balls in Boeing's court now. All right. Well, we're going to be following this as well. Thank you very much, uh, Josh Wingrove. He is our Canadian politics reporter reporting from Washington, D.C., site of the uh, continuing NAFTA talks. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.